you are listening to Kubernetes Bytes, a podcast bringing you the latest from the world of cloud-native data management. My name is Ryan Walner, and I'm joined by Bob and Shaw, coming to you from Boston, Massachusetts. We'll be sharing our thoughts on recent cloud-native news and talking to industry experts about their experiences and challenges managing the wealth of data in today's cloud-native ecosystem. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. We're coming to you from Boston, Massachusetts. Today is September 30th, 2022. I hope everyone is doing well and staying safe. Let's dive into it. I say Boston, Massachusetts, but you are not in Boston, Massachusetts. Sorry. I know. I was just going to bring that up. Like I'm, I'm in Sunnyvale, <laughs> California. <laughs> <laughs> A little nicer over there. And, and I say staying safe. I want to say anyone that's, you know, knows anyone in Florida and everything going on with mm-hmm. Ian, I hope everyone Everyone is actually safe, um, and um, you know we're thinking about everything happening yep. down there, which is pretty wild. Yep, it is. What are you up to? Why are you in California? Oh, we had a uh, uh, um, team offsite. Like we hired a couple of new folks nice. uh, on the tech marketing team. So just wanted to like meet everyone in person, train them up. We have KubeCon coming in a month, right? So we need to make sure everybody is is oh, at yeah. their game. Yeah, KubeCon's right around the corner. I can't believe it. We have one more show to record before KubeCon. So I know that's uh, just, that just shows you. Like, yeah, I was like, <laughs> how how is that so close? Like, I'm, please slow down. <laughs> <laughs> it did come up fast, didn't it? Yeah, yeah that's awesome. Um, I'm going to be going to Monktoberfest in mm-hmm. um, Portland, Maine next week. Wednesday through Friday, uh, which will be a lot of fun. So if you're a listener and you'll be there, let me know. Reach out to me. Um, mm-hmm. I'd love to talk to you, meet you. Um, it'll be a good time. Hopefully not too cold. I know <laughs> uh, Wednesday night they're like doing a whole thing on the boat on the boat, which you know can get pretty chilly <laughs> in yeah, October. October and- <laughs> boat ride. Uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Bring your coat. I think I'll say yeah. <laughs> So are you excited about more about the conference or eating lobster rolls there? Like what's what's going on uh, here? I think more about the conference. I, I, you know, we live on the East Coast. I get a lobster roll, pretty good one, kind of whenever I want. Um, uh, but Portland, <laughs> I don't get to go to Portland that often. And it's a great city. You know, a lot of good food, um, uh, a lot of, you know, uh, good drink if you're into that kind of thing. Yeah. And um, I like I like that city a lot. I just don't get there enough. No, I, so I have a recommendation for you. So there is a brewery called Bellflower Brewing in Portland. You have to go there. Like it's Bellflower. Okay, Bellflower. Yeah. So I, they don't pay me, but <laughs> I'm just recommending <laughs> this to you, not to the entire audience for Monktoberfest. <laughs> but you have a couple of good beers there. <laughs> Absolutely. I've 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 got visited a bunch in that area, mm-hmm. so I will add that one to the list for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, it's gonna be a good time. So yeah. yeah. Anyway, if you're there, let me know. Keep comes around the corner. Uh, again, uh, Bob and I are going to be doing this show in bites. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a little, you know, joke there. If you get it, we're going to do little <laughs> bite-sized uh, shows for about ten minutes. So please reach out to us if you're going to be at uh, KubeCon. We want to talk to you. Uh, it'd be great to have 
um, everyone from the community that, you know, maybe listening to the show or has listened to the show or interested to just come on and give us a little, uh, what you think about the show and everything. So yeah, anyway, yeah. reach out to us, DM us, whatever it is. We have a fun show for you today. Uh, we're going to go over a security in the cloud native Kubernetes space. Um, and it's going to be sort of a one-on-one sort of mile wide, one foot deep kind of conversation, but there's so much uh, to talk about in that space. So it should be a really fun episode for Bob and I to kind of dig into these spaces. And we're going to, you know, uh, have other uh, folks from the security industry on the show afterwards, but this is a good primer, so to speak. Um, and before we get into that, we will cover a bit of news. So Bob, why don't you kick us off? Okay, from a news perspective, I had a few. Uh, the one uh, update I saw around Amazon EKS was they now have something called EKS local clusters on AWS outposts. So you could always run EKS clusters and EKS worker nodes on your out, out, outpost system, but the control plane was still hosted in an Amazon region. This created a few issues, like if you lost connectivity, the control plane would think the nodes went offline. So when the connectivity was restored, it will start deploying new nodes, uh, start moving workloads, even though your original worker nodes were still there. Uh, and that created a lot of issues. So now with local clusters, quote unquote, you can also have your control plane running on outposts. So even if you lose connectivity to the AWS region, you have connected your outpost to your Kubernetes cluster is self-contained on that outpost system. And you don't you don't have to worry about spinning up new nodes and then creating all of that application turnover between nodes. So that's a cool nice. new enhancement. Yeah. Yeah, that's super useful. Do you know if the control plane in the cloud is still aware of the control plane basically on your local data center? There's no control plane uh, in the cloud now. With local clusters, everything is on so outposts. It's only local. Got it. Yeah. I yeah. didn't know if they communicated and it was like a sort of a backup if connection happened. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, great. Nice. Uh, the second thing is around ClusterFS. So ClusterFS uh, was part of one of, like, I think it was one of the entry uh, plugins for storage when it came to Kubernetes. Mm -hmm. And now we all know we have been tracking this for the past few releases that we are moving everything away from entry to like a working CSI driver. Uh, with ClusterFS, there's no working CSI driver. So you will have to move or migrate your data onto some other storage system before you upgrade to the next release that comes out called 1.26. So one last month or this month, I think we had 1.25. So it will take two or three months. But if you're using ClusterFS today, start thinking about it, right? Start thinking about how you will migrate it off before before you run into 1.26. So just an FYI there. And then uh, we have, uh, since we are doing the, the cloud native security episode, I thought I'll uh, bring in some security news as well. So uh, Sysdig, one of the Kubernetes security uh, startups, I don't know if I can call them startups, they're big enough now. Uh, but they they did a, a 2022 threat report. And one of the key stats that uh, popped out at me as they scanned over 250,000 images, so quarter million images, uh, container images that were available on Docker Hub. And the results showed that like there were threat actors that were actively using Docker Hub images to spread malware. So basically, like most common was uh, people installing or having crypto miners as part of those Docker images, which shouldn't be a surprise at this point. But like there were also malicious websites, hacking tools and unwanted software that were found in those images. So make sure that like if you are using uh, or if you're downloading a container image from a public repository, that you know what its components are and something that we'll cover in this podcast uh, uh, as well. But uh, just a new thread report. This was just one of the things that I wanted to highlight. If you wanted to read through it, uh, we'll have the link in the show notes as well. 
Yeah, super interesting report. Um, you know, I think not a surprise, a lot of the mm-hmm. the images that were the majority of them were crypto mining, right? That were yeah. <laughs> were flagged. Um, but there there was a lot of other ones. And I think an interesting topic from that article was that these were disguised as other legitimate pra- uh packages, oh, yes. right? Mm-hmm. So um the, the couple that they I think mentioned is PyTorch and, and Drupal, right? So uh you might think it looks totally fine and it's disguised as that. So, I mean, that's the whole kind of idea about using tools like this. So, um, yep. yeah, definitely go take a read out of it. Pretty uh, insightful. Yes. And then uh, next piece was also around the security front. So there was uh, an update or a patch update to Rancher uh, the, the, uh, because they were storing secrets in plain text. So another, mm-hmm. no, no. <laughs> so <laughs> the reason I bring it up is not to diss at Rancher, but make sure that if you were using Rancher, make sure you're updated to the latest release. You have applied the, all the latest patches to make sure that you're no, no longer vulnerable because this basically exposes your Kubernetes clusters to take over. Like if somebody even has read access to it, they can read all the secrets and basically take over your cluster. So make sure you're running the latest and greatest version when it comes to your Rancher clusters. And we'll again have a link to the show, a link in the show notes to like read more about, uh, about uh, how it happened or what happened. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Yeah, I feel like this is one of those like life rules for Kubernetes. You know how like if you go hiking, you just tell anybody that you're going there if you're going alone. This is one of those things yep. like never store anything in plain text, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> life <Yep>. rule for Kubernetes. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And I think uh, next, I think we had three different things around for KubeCon. So as Ryan said earlier in this episode, right, we are maybe a month away or less than that. Wow, less than that. I think it's our 30th already yep. today. Uh, <laughs> but like we are, we are doing like a few things. Uh, Ryan and I are actually doing a panel with previous Kubernetes Bytes guests. So we'll have Patrick from uh, Datastax, Gabriel from EDB, Ring from VMware, and the two of us will do a panel for a day zero event called Data on Kubernetes. So again, if you are going to be at KubeCon, if you are looking for things to do on the Monday day zero events, Data on Kubernetes is a great way to spend the day, learn about all different things. And bonus, you will maybe see a a lightweight panel discussion between people who have already spoken to each other and not meeting you for me, meeting everyone for the first time. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And the DOK community is such a great one. You know, Bart does an awesome job with the rest of the team. Um, And I think that talk, our panel, I should say, is like one o'clock or something like that. So yeah, come check it out. Even if you get in Monday and you're, you know, morning and you want to come over, uh, please get on over. (laughs) Nice. Uh, And then I think, uh, Ryan, you had something, right? And you didn't even disclose this in the news section. So go for it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I know I have a, a one bullet point here. I still have to get the link, but um, you know, uh, I've been kind of ramping up here at Dell. We're doing uh, something fun at uh, KubeCon called DevOps Debates, which is really just like um, a fun debate forum that is like no more than eight or ten minutes, where we debate a fun topic. Uh, the the one I'm going to be participating in and having a lot of fun with is um, sort of prove me wrong. YAML is the worst thing ever created. Um, if you are a practitioner of Kubernetes, you've 
likely been uh, using a lot of YAML, reading a lot of YAML, editing a lot of YAML. And maybe, maybe you're not, and maybe you're ahead of the game and a lot of automation is doing that. But I have a lot of things to say about, you know, how uh, disgusting the sort of errors are when you have issues and how to find them. And anyway, prove me wrong. Um, yeah. is the idea. And it's friendly. Um, there's no winners, uh, <laughs> but it's it's uh. going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> you might think you won, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it'll be, it'll be a lot of fun. It's um, a friendly sort of community event to, to kind of meet and greet new, new folks and, and discuss fun topics. So we'll have, we'll put the link in the show notes. Nice. And then uh, one, one other thing I was also doing at KubeCon is um, uh, on Tuesday, we have a, a whole different set of day zero events. Uh, we also have something called as a Kubernetes data workshop, which will be like a hands-on day spending time with Kubernetes clusters and how storage and backup and everything works. So uh, if you have been listening to the podcast and are interested on those topics, right, check that day zero event out as well. Uh, something that we are running uh, uh, as part of Portworx, I guess. Cool. Yeah. Um, highly recommended that, uh, that workshop. It is a, a really good way to kind of, uh, get into that space and get your hands on a lot of hands on stuff. So, mm-hmm. um, that is the end of our news today. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early. So everyone can go home on time. There's Granger offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts. So you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Why don't we jump into today's topic? Again, disclaimer, you know, Bob and I are no security experts. That's totally fine. Uh, the idea here is to really um, put everything in one place in a podcast forum, uh, you know, mm-hmm. format. Um, you know, Bob and I have been in the industry for a while and I've, I've run uh, Kubernetes clusters, uh, not on the vendor side and, you know, had a lot of this um, sort of uh, thinking around security, dealt with a lot of PII. So um, we have experience as well as just, you know, there's so much out there. And when you start to dig into it and realize, I mean, we were making notes for this show. Uh, Bob yep. and it was like, oh, now we have three pages of notes, right? So hopefully we'll do uh, justice of uh, putting it all in sort of a forum for the show for you. And so let's dive into it. I think the first thing we wanted to to start with, which is where do you start in this <laughs> in this security journey, right? So, you know, I think the a great place to start, especially since we're focusing on Kubernetes here, is uh, we'll put a link in here. Um, which is on the Kubernetes documentation site. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have a concepts slash security slash overview, which does a really good job of, you know, uh, putting an umbrella over um, the, what they call the four C's of cloud native security. And we'll talk about each C hopefully um, in, in this uh, podcast, right? Mm -hmm. So what I'm actually looking at, I'll describe it because, we are an audio only podcast, but there's a layer cake of those four C's, right? Um, the innermost layer is code. And we're going to dive into really what all the security best practices and sort of things you can do around code. Uh, the next layer is container. Uh, so this is everything to do with, you know, how you run containers, runtime, um, you know, building them, scanning them, everything to do with the container sort of um, uh, space and, and the application that's within them when it's running in a cluster, mm-hmm. which leads me to that next layer, which is cluster. Um, and this is um, basically any any cluster that runs, you know, any, any application that you want to secure. So whether that's 
home built in your uh, in your home, literally, or <laughs> if it's nice. on, uh, you know, Colo or on the cloud or on prem, whatever it may be that cluster has to be sort of thought about um, very, very much in depth. It's probably, um, I'd say, one of the more vulnerable uh, places, but we can dive into about what that is. And then cloud, um, colo, and data center, you know, those, you know, where the clusters actually are. Um, luckily, we've been doing security in those contexts for a long time. So there's a lot of security. Um, and we're not going to dive into, you know, a ton of details. Um, but we will reference sort of, you know, how you have to think about, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, the actual infrastructure and cloud and, and where you're actually building those clusters and, and using containers and code. So no, I think the the cloud security thing that you mentioned, right, is is good because uh, it's not that people are new to public cloud or, or running their own data centers. Uh, we, the the only difference between running everything inside your own data center is that you own end to end security, whereas in the cloud, uh, we have always heard about the shared security model where the public cloud provider or the vendor that you're working with is responsible for making sure that physical access to the data center is secure and uh, the drives are encrypted where your data is being stored and uh, the access has been restricted. So all of that, again, that, that already exists in the ecosystem. So as Ryan said, right, we'll focus more and more time on in this podcast on code, container and cluster, and then just cover a little bit around cloud and, and, and the data center level security that you need. Cool. Um, so let's start with so, code. Let's start with that innermost sort of uh, layer there and yep. talk a little bit about what what we should start thinking about when we think about code. Yep. So like whenever we are thinking about running applications on Kubernetes, right, you have to start with application code. And the way developers are putting together their code or assembling the logic of, of an application, they're using a mixture of uh, open source packages and then obviously writing their own custom code and open source packages should require or should do something called software composition analysis so this helps you identify all the different uh, open source packages and and vulnerabilities that they might have so this analysis helps you like prevent uh, exposing things like secrets uh, by scanning the configuration issues already or it it helps you prevent a scenario where you are hard coding secrets or hard coding log locations and stuff like that in your code and then uh, running it in, in, in production environment. So as you're going through writing your code and building your code locally on your laptop, maybe just think about what tools you can use to make sure that you identify what are the different components uh, inside your uh, in, in, inside all the different open source packages that you're using as part of the code. So I think that's, that's my like one liner. Um, and, you know, thinking about code a little bit more, right, there's a lot of things you can do when it comes to uh, what Bob said, looking at the code, static code analysis, actually mm -hmm. taking snippets of that code and, and be able to see if there's any vulnerabilities um, in the actual code itself versus just the packages that use. Um, you can do things like dynamic probing attacks, which is, you know, actual running uh, versions of those software that, you know, uh, target common, well-known service attacks at mm -hmm. those things to see if your code is hardened. There's a lot of things that are laid out. Um, and then there's sort of, uh, you know, cloud native container ways to think about um, your, your code base, like if you're running a server uh, or a service that exposes a certain port, make sure that, you know, that build image and that actual software package only exposes that port, right? That's a little yep. bit into the container space, which we'll get into next, um, you know, in terms of, you know, how you actually do that and make sure your code is secure in terms of like, if it's opening connections to places, use TLS, right? 
do mm-hmm. as much as you can there. There are ways to kind of enable containers that aren't ready to do those things. Um, but if you're starting at the code, think about that first, right? Yep. And like, as you said, right, code basically morphs into the next layer, which is containers and how we can like talk about securing these different container images. So uh, like even when we are talking about the 4C model or if you're a developer listening and you're thinking about your development lifecycle, like, okay, you you wrote some code on your laptop and next is the build stage. So how, mm-hmm. do, how does that work, right? How do I make sure I'm using the CICD tools and generating container images or building container images that are secure. So both, uh, like when when you are writing code, you are obviously committing it to a, some GitHub repo, repo or some Git repo, repo, not GitHub. Uh, but this this will eventually kick kick off your build pipeline. And one of the jobs that you should have as part of your CI/CD workflow is making sure that you scan those images that are being generated. And these images will need to be scanned for any kind of vulnerability. And now, I think as we are moving forward, and I know we'll talk about SBOM uh, or Software Bill of Materials and why that's maybe a needed component going forward. Uh, building an SBOM as part of your CI/CD pipeline gives you, a full, gives you the full visibility into the risks of all the applicable third-party libraries uh, and, 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 and components in those libraries that you're using in your application, right? So it, it, it includes like, what are the different packages? Uh, what are the different versions of those packages? Uh, it, 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 like modern tools can also identify what are the vulnerabilities in those packages right now. So if you're using something that you didn't know had a vulnerability, you can fix it as part of the build job. But generating that SBOM actually helps you make sure that you have a list of different packages in your application code. So if a new vulnerability comes online, you can check whether you are you are impacted by it and then fix it and uh, and and run those checks again. So. I know I used SBOM uh, as as if that was a very well-known term, but let me give you a quick definition, right? SBOM or Software Bill of Materials is a complete and formally structured list of components, libraries, and modules that are required to build a given piece of software uh, and the relationship between them. And yes, I did copy it from an official website. So that's why it sounded like one, (laughs) but I just wanted to make sure people know what it means. Uh, And then there are two main standards for generating SBOMs. The first one is Software Package Data Exchange or SPDX and SPDX Lite or Cyclone DX. Again, uh, going back to our original point, we are not experts. We just wanted to make sure that you are aware of these terms. So we, uh, you can start looking at it on your own or uh, we'll have future guests to talk about these uh, details as well. Yeah, and and um, I think when we talk about con- the actual container image as well as scanning, um, mm-hmm. if we take a step back of who's building those and how those things are built, right? Definitely dig into how you're building your containers um, and what that pipeline looks like and where you're you're kind of pulling. Uh, other, uh, mm-hmm. you know, base images from, right? As we know, um, with Docker, at least in a Docker file, you choose a base image, um, you need to scan that base image too, right? You can't yep. just scan the, the the thing that you've built. Um, and this kind of leads me back into um, the, the development piece of it, because when you're building that image, don't just build an image that works because it works, right? <laughs> think about... Um, 
<laughs> which I'm guilty no, yeah, of. That's like, true. Yeah. <laughs> as long as it works, yeah, it's not my problem. A lot of times. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, but really think about what what is the bare minimum that needs to be in that that image yeah. that, to make your software work, right? Because that's going to reduce a lot of attack surface. It's going to reduce the size of that thing, right? A lot of good goes into thinking through that problem, um, and and it, and it boosts you know how you can you know easily scan and make sure that thing is secure. I, I know a lot of a lot of like I know Red Hat does this where they certify container images where they mm-hmm. go through a process uh, to make sure they're vulner- uh, vulnerability free and um, kind of supported those kind of things. So, you know, that's something else you can look for if you're building applications. If you do need to pull from or use certain images, you know, see if they have a, a certified kind of, um, you know, background or if, the, if it's a well-known image. It's not just like Joe Schmo on Docker Hub <laughs> um, uh, built an image that seems like it could do the thing you want, right? Yeah. That That's probably a red flag. I'd put, mm-hmm. I'd put it in the bucket of red flags if you're thinking through that way. Um, no, I think so, I, I, I like that point, right? Like have, making sure that you are only using up like good images that have been scanned by vendors uh, is a great policy. But it, let's say like we have been talking about how developers are doing this, right? But if you are an operator or on, on the ops side, uh, what, what we have seen is there are tools outside, uh, tools in the ecosystem that allow you to set a couple of things as part of the CI/CD workflow or as, as part of this build pipeline. The first thing is having a list of approved base images. So basically whenever your developer submits any code and runs through the pipeline and they're running these scans against it, if uh, the container that or the base image that they are using for their container is not one of the approved base image uh, base images. Obviously, it will generate uh, an error. Maybe the build will fail, fail so that the developer can go back, change the base image that they are using, and and submit the the task again. So as as a security admin or a DevOps admin, make sure that you're thinking about this, right? As Ryan said, like there are vendors who are signing their images and making sure they have the official yeah. ones available. Uh, have a list of approved base, base images that are available to all your developers. They know where to pull from. And this leads to the next point where there are two kinds of container registries or repositories. Uh, there, we obviously know of Docker Hub and we all uh, all know of GCR and ACR, uh, all of the public cloud hosted container registries that are available for you to consume as a service. But if you are building applications and running them, right, think about running having a private registry and running uh, continual scans on the registry. So we're not just scanning those images when there is an actual build job happening. We are continuously sa- scanning the container registry and making sure that all the images that exist inside my container registry are mm-hmm. always secure and there are no any new vulnerabilities that are affecting any of my existing images. So day zero, yes, but also from an ongoing or a day two basis, you should be scanning those images that you are using in your application code yeah and then and you mentioned you mentioned digital signatures right mm-hmm. on these images uh it, that is becoming kind of a standard way to make sure things haven't been tampered with you're not running mm-hmm. an image that's been tampered with uh a note on that is that it looks different depending on the container platform you're using so yep. there's not like one way to make sure it's signed a specific way do a little bit of research about how you know the platform you're using is you know making sure containers are signed and, and make sure you're kind of using those mechanisms is all I'll say. I have to be broad about it because it's different for everyone. Oh yeah, uh, no, completely agree. And then one last thing around CI/CD that I had was setting assurance policy. So obviously you'll have a list of approved base images for your container images, but then you should also have uh, rules in place as part of your pipeline that if people are using non-compliant images or if they are u- uh, using packages uh, that or if their code 
doesn't restrict privileges to the least privileged model if they are embedding any secrets if you, if any malware pops up in that image have something in place that continuously checks this as part of the ci cd pipeline like uh developers like to move fast and break things i know it's a facebook saying but i think that's what <laughs> they do <laughs> So make sure that as that security uh, uh, persona inside your organization, or even if you're a dev- uh, lead developer who is responsible for making sure that any code that comes out of your uh, uh, team is is good and it's secure, have these policies in place so that there is always a guidance to fall back on. There is always automation to fall back on instead of having to rely on individual users doing the right thing. So that, that, that yeah. that's it for CICD security for me. Cool. I, a couple, a couple more things of the container mm-hmm. piece before we move on, um, which is, you know, the the actual composition of users mm-hmm. in your container images, right? Uh, when you build an image, you often assign, you know, there's a you know, nginx user or you know memcache user, whatever you're building, um, that has privileges to use whatever is in that container. When you launch that thing, it has to be part of that user, and that's more of the runtime piece that we'll talk about. But when you're building container images, think about this. Don't just um, you know, uh, don't just build a container that has like root, root. Yeah, exactly. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's the, the easy one to avoid, right? Um, it can cause your images to you know, be a little harder to run, but ultimately in the long run, figuring out to run that thing as a, you know, least privileged user, you know, just, you know, keeping that concept of, you know, uh, you know, least privilege in mm-hmm. in cloud container i think is is very important so definitely think about that and then one thing i actually learned as part of this part of this research which uh, is really cool is the idea of runtime classes um and that that is actually something that was introduced in 1.20 i believe or sorry it was stable in 1.20 it's probably been around longer i'm still learning about it but the idea is that um different images have different levels of security that you need, right? Mm-hmm. So you may run one thing that needs more security and more isolation. Um, and, and one thing that, you know, can kind of use uh, whatever default runtime. And runtime classes give you the ability to kind of say, um, hey, all my nodes use this, you know, runtime, say it's container D. Um, and uh, that Runtime can have different classes, such as it can use sort of a standard container runtime or something mm-hmm. like Kata containers to run your container. And that uses hardware virtualization to run your uh, container in a more you know isolated manner. And so you can actually assign a runtime class to your container image when it, uh, when it actually gets run. Um, and that's something that's, I think, uh, probably overlooked a lot of the times when we build mm-hmm. out these these systems. We often just say like, oh, you know, you just have one runtime and then it gets launched how it gets launched. But you you do have some configurability there. So definitely take a look at the runtime classes. I was uh, super interested in uh, learning more about that when I was going through this. Next on our list here, uh, since we're moving on from container, and we might kind of bring back concepts of container because obviously we talk about containers in a lot of these uh different layers, right? Whether mm-hmm. that's in runtime in the cluster, when you're building, during development. So we'll probably uh, bring back some of these concepts. So the, the next part of this layer cake, right? We talked about code a little bit. We talked about container a little bit. The next one is cluster. And I think when people think about Kubernetes and security, they probably think about this layer most, or mm-hmm. maybe not. Uh, maybe that's just my personal opinion, you know, given my background. But um, I think when it comes to Kubernetes, we think Kubernetes clusters, and then we think about you know how to secure that. 
thing. Um, and there's a lot of information here in this space, right, um, uh, that we can get into. But I think when we're sort of diving into securing a cluster, there's a really good resource, again, on the security documentation called Securing a Cluster. Um, it's in Docs Tasks, Administering mm-hmm. a Cluster, Securing Clusters. There's a lot of good stuff in here. Uh, we're probably going to kind of scratch the surface here. Um, mm-hmm. But I think we'll start with, you know, whether you're using a managed service or not, I think your life's definitely going to be a little bit easier using a managed service because you're kind of uh, letting that uh, managed service or cloud provider, whatever it is, take on a lot of responsibility when it comes to securing a container. Whether you feel good about that or not, some shops, you know, rather have their hands all over building their own. That's fine too. Um, but I think at a most basic level, right, uh, Kubernetes and Cloud Native is all about sort of APIs and API driven, right? Um, mm-hmm. And we have to first think about who has access to those APIs, whether it's a brand new Kubernetes cluster or you've been running it for a while. Are my APIs secure, right? Do can can we have a bad actor kind of uh, go ahead and uh, attack those APIs? Meaning, you know, life rule: have some sort of <laughs> authentication authorization <laughs> around those APIs. Do not leave them wide open on on the internet. Um, that's how you get uh, Bitcoin miners in your clusters. <laughs> 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 which which we've seen before and it still happens all the time. Um, I, I don't remember, we referenced a report on this podcast once of like how many miners were actually, or or how many APIs were on the internet, right? That were oh, open yeah. or Kubernetes <laughs> ones, right? I think we talked about that a little Even bit. Even though that, uh, I think the report you're referring to had like a really inflated number, like millions of Kubernetes API <laughs> servers are available. Like eventually that number was like, again, still considerable. It was around the 700 to 1000 mark, if I remember correctly, but it was not a million, but still there are like thousand clusters available. So yeah. Uh, Please, uh, if if you have some black hat, hat uh, hackers listening to this podcast, please don't use that information. <laughs> <laughs> or do, and they'll learn the hard lesson. Um, <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, so that that kind of leads us to sort of the authentication authorization uh, mechanisms, and there's sort of a lot. I mean, we can talk about, I think, on this podcast, what Kubernetes gives you by default. We're not going to go into what every mm-hmm. vendor can tack on to your cluster. But if you're kind of building or using Kubernetes, right, um, there's a lot of things that you can do uh, by default. Hopefully, if you're building a Kubernetes cluster, um, API, API authentication is going to be sort of uh, an, an obvious one in terms of mm-hmm. how you connect users to that, right? Whether that's local users with passwords and it's a dev cluster, do something, right? Yep. Or if it's a full-blown sort of larger cluster that's connected with OIDC or LDAP or those kind of things that's tied to corporate groups, you know, make sure all that is um, being authenticated and, you know, your infrastructure has a way to do those things. I think a no-brainer, but definitely something worth talking about. No, agreed, right? And I think when I was like, not not for this podcast, when I was beginning my, I guess, tech career, I always got confused between authentication and authorization. So I'm just going to put it out there. Yeah. So authentication is the ability for you to allow users to log in. Like as as Ryan said, right, you can have 
a set of user credentials if it's just a dev cluster or integrate with external uh, identity management systems uh, you, such as OIDC or LDAP or things like that and make sure that only specific users or groups of users can access your cluster or access your resources and authorization is comes after that like once your authentication is done that's when authorization comes in and then a specific user can have different sets of permissions inside your Kubernetes cluster so like one of the things that we have uh, I know like Ryan and I have worked on in the past is like once you are, once you have authenticated you might have read only access to all the persistent volumes or you might have the ability to create persistent volumes so all of that is falls under authorization so again something to make sure that you're using best practices this is not something that's new in the ecosystem authorization authentication have been around but think about how you'll morph it or modify it for your kubernetes clusters yeah absolutely that's a good way of uh thinking about it for sure um so authorization right Mm-hmm. Kubernetes gives you RBAC basically to do this. Yep. Uh, and that stands for role-based access control. Um, and that's integrated. It's a big part of what Kubernetes is. Um, yes, it can be a pain to work with, but mm-hmm. um, it's an integral part of of making sure sort of there's a separation of of you know of what users can actually do as Bob, Bob and mentioned before. It's actually what they're authorized to to do in there. Mm-hmm. Um, meaning that, you know, do they have um, you know, it, it's fairly I think straightforward in terms of the the language it uses, right? Can you actually create things, delete things, get things, list things, right? All those things are configurable within RBAC policies tied to users and services accounts, right? Um, Kubernetes pretty much has those two general high-level roles, which is a a user of Kubernetes, whether that's an admin or just a dev or that kind of thing, or a read-only user, uh, and then service accounts, which typically are tied to some non-human thing right um uh that needs access to things right that i think lasts a little longer i think the details um but know the difference between those two right um and then you know different objects can also have uh, rbac policies not just users right a node um can can obviously um be something that interacts with other components of the cluster so uh dig into rbac you know i you know it could be an entire podcast series going into rbac <laughs> we're not going to do that here um but definitely dig into role based access access control make sure you're using the policies uh, uh thoroughly it's out of the box it's there for you it works really well um definitely I, uh, dive into that agreed right like kubernetes did have some things that it shipped with so uh in terms of rbac so if you're thinking about or maybe you've heard this these terms if you're just starting new with kubernetes or if you if you are already using it you might already be using these terms but you have roles and you have role bindings and you uh, that I, allow you to uh set a, a list of permissions to specific objects and give those permissions to specific users uh, or objects so that's a role and that happens at a namespace level and then if you if you have also heard cluster roles and cluster role bindings that happens at the cluster level so uh, even when you are configuring these set of permissions right if you're running a, a multi-tenant kubernetes cluster maybe think about roles and role bindings versus cluster roles and cluster role bindings so something to like differentiate the level of permissions that anyone any authenticated user might have against uh, the resources that you have inside your cluster and then i, I know we covered this in the gitops episode that we did uh, a, a few weeks back like if you are following the gitops methodology uh only only your github repo or only that one piece of operator and, and custom resource should have access to your cluster you shouldn't have access to uh, you shouldn't give access to any users that are trying to make any changes to your kubernetes cluster so you can always follow different security 
methodologies when you're when you're dealing with Kubernetes. Yeah, absolutely. And and there's a lot more information here. Uh, we'll put a link into the actual authorization documentation mm-hmm. that um, Kubernetes has. There's other methods that Kubernetes uses. RBAC's a very common one, probably the the one you'll interact with more, but there's ABAC, there's Node, mm-hmm. there's Webhook, there's there's a bunch of other ones. So uh, dig into those for sure. Um, I think... Sorry, uh, I think uh, when we're talk- since we're still talking about cluster, right? I also wanted to talk about and something that Ryan referred to earlier in this pod, where you can either be deploying clusters on your own, uh, regardless of the location or the infrastructure stack that you're using, or you might be using something that's um, offered as a managed service. But the way you're deploying this is my- might be through u- using some sort of automation. You might be using some infrastructure as code template. You might be using some Terraform scripts, Ansible scripts uh, uh, to to do the to do these. Keep in mind that you also have to like test those scripts out or, or run checks against those scripts, against those templates, because you can introduce misconfiguration at scale in an automated way if, if your templates are messed up. So the IAC templates or infrastructure as code templates must also be scanned for any misconfiguration. So issues can be resolved earlier rather than fixing it on day two or fixing it live in production. You don't want to be changing the, uh, the tires of an F1 car when it's going around the lab, you you want to do it before the game has started. That was a really bad analogy, but hopefully it got the message through. <laughs> I got the message, Bob, and don't worry. <laughs> I was um, like, hopefully, uh, our, hopefully our listeners did too. I've heard like changing something while the plane is uh, in the air. I was like, they don't change tires of a plane. So I don't know where I'm going with this. <laughs> I think uh, you know, basically building the plane while the, the uh, yeah I've heard those ah, too. But yeah, thank you, thank you for helping me. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and? so so getting back to the cluster a bit, right? Yeah. There's there's still a lot we can talk about, right? One one of which is you know we've talked about the APIs around it, the users, the access, um, the, mm-hmm. the the actual nodes themselves that run containers, right? The kubelet um, is a very powerful piece of the cluster. It runs the actual containers, it has access to the node. Um, I you know the docs still say that you know by default kubelets allow unauthenticated access to its API. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, um, I think you know. For a lot, a lot of reasons, is you know, you don't need a lot of the complex setup if you're doing dev and things like that. But uh, if you are thinking about security, make sure to do kubelet authentication and dig in, dig in there, as well as sort of, um, as well as taking the next step in your kubelet is controlling the capabilities that the workloads um, actually get to consume when they're run by the kubelet, right? So this is a big part of, of you know, what the, you know, Kubernetes and container security is all about, which is you're building, so we've talked about uh, code, you've written some code, you think it's secure, you've built a container, you think it's secure. Now you need to run that thing in Kubernetes. So you've you've secured your cluster, you have the right access with users and, and RBAC and all that thing. You've deployed your containers to a kubelet. What can it actually do on that kubelet? There's so much, um, um, that can be configured in that node in terms of how that container runs, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and so there's there's everything from resource quotas, meaning how much CPU and memory um, uh, an individual container at runtime can use, so you can limit those things. Um, that's it may not seem like a security thing, but you don't want a container to be able to just run rampant and use up the whole uh, node. Um, you could oh, con- yeah. you know continuously do that for sort of a uh, D- uh, DDoS kind of attack, uh, as well as um, you can limit uh, use limit ranges, which basically um, 
put a max and minimum of resources uh, that a user can can consume, right? Um, mm-hmm. Tied back to that user concept uh, in in Kubernetes, and then there's there's a whole slew of of pod based security that you can do. So uh, Kubernetes uses uh, you know pod based security contexts, right? Pods can run one or more containers. This is a very common sort of terminology, um, but there's a lot of tools that you can use within that pod, such as sort of the user ID that's being run by the container, um, the group ID. You can configure SE Linux or um, you know, configure the Linux capabilities through SecComp um, uh, and things like AppArmor. Um, there's a lot of things that we can kind of dive into, yeah. but know that those things exist, right? Uh, I think SecComp and AppArmor, they've been around for a while, right? Um, and they've um, enabled you to be able to secure sort of um, the way that a compute uh, a compute node can be run with the Linux kernel, so giving uh, limited permission to certain uh, calls and um, and defining a profile of, of what can actually run. You can tie those things to pods containers, um, and there's a whole world of information in um, configuring those and, and kind of understanding those, uh, which we won't go into here, um, but they're very important, right? And they're a big part of how a container actually uh, runs and gets access. Because remember, in, in most container runtimes, right, we share access with the kernel for everything. Yeah. Um, so um, it's not as isolated as virtual machines and, and, and kind of um, something like Kata. Um, so we have to make sure we're kind of thinking through those things because, you know, uh, a worst case scenario is a, a bad actor breaks out from a container, gets access access to the host, right? Yep. And then therefore everything on that host and probably um, maybe even your cluster is now at risk. So uh, definitely dig into those. No, thank you for bringing up the container breakout attacks, right? Uh, I think the, the way Kubernetes was helping people enforce these policies was using the concept of pod security policies or PSPs. And it was a really important security features uh, feature in Kubernetes for a long time. It, it helped users set limits in place so that like even if uh, someone breaks out of that container, can't, can't access the, the cluster node. Uh, there have been some changes in the way uh, like for, around PSP, like PSP or pod security policies were deprecated in Kubernetes version 1.21. And if you looked at the release notes for 1.25, they have been completely removed. There is a replacement for pod security policy and it's called pod security admission. And these, this is an entry replacement. Uh, so if you're, if you're using PSP, now is PSA or pod security admission. Uh, this feature takes a different but simpler approach of applying, applying these restrictions. So instead of the user having to configure uh, a custom set of rules and, res- uh, and, uh, of, of, and permissions for containers running on nodes, now I think uh, pod security admissions has, has three different levels of pod security standards or PSS, uh, mm-hmm. which can be applied as part of any pod on a namespace by namespace basis. So uh, something to think about, right? Like PSP is no longer around. So if you're using it, make sure whenever you upgrade to 1.25, uh, you change that up and use one of the three pod security standards using pod security admission. Yeah. Um, and this does, this is a really powerful tool, right? Again, you can do a lot of stuff like this, like make sure mm-hmm. we don't, uh, containers don't load mod, uh, uh, kernel modules that yeah. are, you know, 
blacklisted, those kind of things. Anyway, we won't get into those details. I know, um, I don't know if others are guilty, but I'm definitely guilty of like, you know, if you've ever built a container and you're dealing with security issues and maybe you're, um, you just need to think to run because you know, you're doing some development work. And so you just make it privileged, right? You mm-hmm. just give the thing the full access yeah. to a privileged container. Um, that's a perfect example of what not to do, right? Yes. Um, in most scenarios, uh, I would say, you know, if it's just for like a super non-sensitive development thing, fine. Um, but it's a perfect example of sort of the opposite end of the spectrum of what you shouldn't do, right? That gives full permission. Privilege does solve a lot of problems when you run into trying to run a container that's, you know, hitting, you know, security policies, stuff like that. I don't know if you've ever used OpenShift, Bobbin, and, you know, you just want your container to run, but it takes you four, you know, four <laughs> 40 minutes, I'll say, to plus to figure out the uh, security policies. But yeah. it's really important to actually go through those, especially for production. I mean, it's a, yeah. uh, a lot, a lot there. Agreed. Okay, I mean, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm not running anything in production. I'm just doing dev tests. I'm just doing <laughs> demos uh, because I don't enforce all security policies all the time. So I should start doing that even for demos. Agreed. <laughs> yeah, right, uh, we all should. <laughs> yes. I think uh, next let's, let's go to, to our, uh, our strong points, right? Like talk about persistent storage, talk about encryption, talk about ransomware protection. <laughs> I think <laughs> that's something that we can, we can be kind of experts on. Uh, so uh, I, I think just to start the discussion off, uh, whenever you're running anything on Kubernetes, make sure that you're using encryption at rest and encryption in transit. Encryption at rest basically means whenever your application is writing some data, storing it in persistent volumes, those PVs are encrypted uh, on the underlying storage. Uh, if you are transferring data between clusters, if you're creating backup jobs and shipping snapshots off to an S3 location, make sure those are encrypted as well. Uh, make sure that any communication between your nodes is encrypted. So encryption in transit for those two scenarios. Encryption actually like plays a really important role, right? Like, so even if somebody gets access to your cluster, uh, they can't decrypt your persistent volumes and, and maybe look at secrets in plain text, which is something that we discussed earlier in the pod. <laughs> Exactly right. Encryption at rest, encryption in transit. Definitely big things in um, the the storage space. I think you know, just if you're using sort of a, a CSI mechanism or persistent storage provider, right? Definitely look at making sure that um, that thing is also secure, right? You mm-hmm. have Kubernetes itself has a bunch of APIs, but then you also have now the storage system, which is you know could have its own sort of attack surface and, and how you know you interact with those APIs. Like that that that's something that's probably often overlooked. You kind of connect this thing, you have the driver, you know, woohoo, <laughs> you're ready to go. Um, but make sure that's a whole different attack surface that definitely can be um, you know uh, restricted in terms of you know what kind of security is around those APIs and everything. Yep. Um, I, there's some basic things in Kubernetes that also, you know, with storage, you can configure access modes to, you know, volumes, make sure that you have the right access mode configured for your use case. Um, mm-hmm. As far as like file system group ID and, and those things, right? Um, Kubernetes by default does a lot of things like kind of churn a bunch of files to the user um, based on those things. And um, if you if you often um, connect a volume, sometimes it's just everything's root. So, you know, things might not work. So pay attention to those mechanisms in Kubernetes uh, in terms of um, the user of the file system itself. Yep. Okay. And then talking about ransomware protection, uh, immutability, having using uh, object lock enabled backups, all of that really helps out. Like even if you get attacked by a ransomware attack, uh, you might be vulnerable or your primary cluster 
uh, might be vulnerable. But if you have an immutable copy of your application somewhere, uh, you can restore from that copy. And the reason it's immute, like the reason you sh- it should be immutable and not just a standard backup is even if the hackers try to manipulate your backup snapshots, which they do, like if you look at r- reports out there, they do try to uh, uh, mess with your backup jobs, make sure that they are immutable so that if you get hit by uh, one, you can spin up new environments, maybe spin up a new AWS account completely, spin up your EKS clusters. Again, I'm using AWS as just an example, but you should you can restore from these immutable snapshots and bring your applications online. So having that layer of protection definitely helps uh, securing your organization's estate or securing your organization's infrastructure. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Yeah, uh, definitely something that you want to think about, right, um, is is having that that backup um, for your cluster because as best of an effort we can do to secure all these clusters, you know, sometimes there's there's holes that we don't know about. Um, so having that, you know, especially in certain scenarios where you have very sensitive types of data or, or very large uh, customer base that you'd ha- you lose lots of lots of uh, money for doing that. You want to <laughs> make sure mm-hmm. you uh, offload a lot of your data and and back it up. So certainly a very important piece of this puzzle. Um, well, you know, we we hit on a lot of these uh, different layers. I think the one we didn't fully talk about and, and, and granted, we didn't yet get to, you know, things like networking security or what if you have, you know, PII information in there. We probably yep. won't get to that today. Um, but that last layer of the cake is um, the cloud colo and, and data center. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, there's a there's there's a ton of good resources, whether you're on AWS, Google, IBM, whatever cloud you're on right all those platforms have sort of their own security center or trust center whatever you want to call it uh, and best practices right this this again you know we're not going to dig a lot of uh, focus a lot on sort of the different clouds and and what you can do with there but um, uh, definitely follow those best practices what we will focus on a little bit is in terms of like the infrastructure nodes that are sort of um you know what you're running, and and I and the one thing I definitely wanted to dive into is sort of that node and host level type of type of thing, right? So mm-hmm. if you're running your own container uh, platform or building it, or you know running a Kubernetes cluster, there's a lot of things that a managed service will do for you that you know you might take for granted, like making sure your 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 node operating system is up to date and your kernel's up to date, right? If you let those things go, um, you know, too long, that could open vulnerabilities, right? Container um, uh, operating systems built for these types of things like Bottle Rocket or Photon or Red Hat mm-hmm. OS, which is Core OS, they have, you know, sort of read-only root file systems and things that are more tuned to running container platforms. Uh, I think those are really interesting sort of ways that um, enable uh, less of an attack service than if you were to use, you know, a full-blown operating system. Um, uh, definitely something to look at as well. And and then just, we mentioned it before, things like lightweight container 
uh, runtimes. You mm-hmm. know, we mentioned Cata before. There's a bunch of them out there, but this ultimately is something you want to think about if you really have high security concerns of what you know what your actual uh, container um, applications are running, and you really want to secure it. Definitely look into those sort of other options that you have at that node and host level. But I think a lot of the node and host level things, Bob, and I don't know if you would agree with me, but these things, you know, in a sysadmin space, have been around for a long time, yep. and there's a lot of resources about you know what you can do to make sure your node uh, and everything is is secure first, because that's obviously uh, a good place to start. No, uh, completely agree, right? Like uh, the reason we didn't spend as much time on on the that cloud layer was because people have been using it for a while. So uh, again, if if we hear feedback that no, we need to spend more time, we'll obviously come back and do a detailed episode. <laughs> but I think we have enough content for this podcast. I I just wanted to bring one more thing uh, after you finish talking about cloud security. Yeah, um, you know, uh, I'll end there because I know we've 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 covered a lot already. Um, yeah. uh, some things we didn't really dive into is networking. There's there's definitely mm-hmm. a whole world there. So um, all I'll say is that um, there's a lot of of tools and mechanisms you can use to secure your network in terms of specific network policies or making sure you use TLS or um, you know different network providers that provide different sort of yeah. uh, monitoring capabilities. And and of course something we also didn't mention is sort of like ongoing monitoring and auditing, right? Yep. Big piece of of the puzzle here for security. Uh, uh, Kubernetes doesn't do a whole ton here, but it does give you an auditing feature that you can definitely, um, uh, you know, drive home and uh, make sure you set up and, and continuously monitor. So I'll, yeah, I'll, and, uh, I'll leave it over to you, Bob, and then. Yeah, and uh, to, to close that point, right? I think uh, you don't, Kubernetes does offer a basic set of capabilities, but you shouldn't stop there. Like if, nope. if there is something that's missing in Kubernetes, go and look at the vendor ecosystem. The reason CNCF has a huge, uh, like if you, I know everybody likes to scare, uh, like whenever we are doing presentation, we show that CNCF landscape, show all the different open source projects, show all the different vendors that are participating. The reason people are around is because Kubernetes does give you that baseline of capability, but it doesn't do anything and everything that you might want to do inside your organization. So look at different open source projects, look at different paid enterprise offerings that can help you secure your uh, organize uh, like applications better. One last thing that I wanted to do, like it didn't fall into any of these buckets, but it's about implementing that red team, blue team philosophy inside your organization, right? Again, if you're a smaller org, you might not have enough people to form a whole team, but it might be just a red person, blue person. Uh, the the ability to run penetration testing against your Kubernetes clusters. And there are tools out there. I found, During my research, I found something called Cube Hunter that's available as an open source project that you can use. And again, they have disclaimers throughout their GitHub page that please don't use in uh, this tool against Kubernetes clusters that are not your own. Don't try and exploit different clusters using our tool. But the, it's a tool that's available that helps you run penetration testing across all the different layers that we just discussed. It, it runs in a couple of different modes. So by default, it runs in something called as passive hunters mode, where it runs a series of tests, identifies potential vulnerabilities inside your cluster, but doesn't really exploit them. If you uh, if you turn on the active hunting mode with by pa- passing on the active parameter, this enables Cube Hunter to run additional set of tests. So it will run the passive tests, identify the vulnerabilities and try to use those and run it, uh, uh, run additional tests using those vulnerabilities that are open, giving you an indication of what an attacker might be able to do. So uh, it, it, this level of penetration testing is something that you should be doing on an, on, on an ongoing basis. And it covers things like initial access, right? Accessing your cloud uh, credentials, accessing your Kubernetes cluster, accessing your kube config file, two things like 
uh, if I get access to your con- uh, cluster, can I exec into a specific container? Can I start a new container? All of those things are important. Can I create a backdoor container? Can I escalate permissions from a container and go to that node level, things that we discussed in this pod? Uh, how do I try? Uh, it also helps you perform penetration testing against your authorization and authentication policies. Can I access your Kubernetes dashboard? Again, there are so many things. They have a cool matrix that we'll put in our show notes or link to it in our show notes. But make sure that if you're just getting started with Kubernetes security, right? Have a, a person in your team or a team of users that is putting on this hat and trying it out. You, you you should be testing or pen testing your own systems to make sure that you are secure from external attackers and you're fixing things before it becomes a, an exploit that external audience can use against your clusters. And with that, I think I've covered my entire list of things. I know this has been a really long podcast of just me and Ryan talking, but that that's with this specific space, right? It is it is such a huge ecosystem and different things that you can do that it's really important to at least just bring these things out so you start thinking about it. And then as Ryan said in the beginning of this part, we'll definitely try to get get more Kubernetes security guests on the part as well so we can focus on individual layers as well. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Absolutely. So um, we'll end it here. And uh, I want to say, you know, there's there's so much in this space. We'll I think what we'll actually end up doing is something a little different. Uh, there's a, so much information we have in, in our show notes. We might mm-hmm. just like post a, a, an external, um, you know, Google Doc where, you know, yep. if the community wants to you know check it out or add to it, those kind of things might be um, something we could do. So look for that again. We'll be at KubeCon in a couple weeks. Uh, it's it's right around the corner. Definitely let us know if you're going to be there. Um, we'll be talking to the to- folks from uh, Stack OS, if you're mm-hmm. into sort of distributed blockchain stuff um, and how they use Kubernetes, um, in a couple of weeks we'll have that episode coming. And I will say that you know, in summary, definitely start with the four C's uh, of mm-hmm. cloud native security, and that will let you branch out into all these different uh, things. And a lot of things we didn't touch on today. Uh, we know we didn't touch on every aspect of it, but hopefully this podcast gives you sort of a uh, sense of everything that you need to start thinking about. So. Yeah, and, and and Ryan said, right, if you are at KubeCon and uh, come say hi, grab a few stickers. Yes, we have stickers. Yes, we'll have stickers. Uh, come That's say right. hi, <laughs> grab a few stickers. Uh, and then if you have interesting stories to tell, uh, we'll, we'll be more than happy to have you on the podcast for that bite section. Uh, but I just wanted to make sure that people know where to find us. So we'll, we'll be definitely doing the data on Kubernetes day. We'll have a panel there. But then during the show, right, uh, we'll be at our respective vendors. So I work for Portworks. So we, I'll be hanging out at the Portworks booth. I know Ryan uh, now works at Dell. So uh, I'm pretty sure he'll be hanging out at the Dell booth as well. So come right. find us. Or if you just see a couple of people in, in a corner somewhere with a couple of microphones trying to record something, that more likely than not, it's just the two of us trying to record something in, 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 in a corner. <laughs> awesome yeah all right well that brings us to the end of today's episode i'm ryan i'm bobin and thanks for joining another episode of kubernetes bites thank you for listening to the kubernetes bites podcast everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 